Welcome back to the second episode of The Journey, an adult chess improvement podcast. Uh, the focus of this podcast is on the journey itself. It's not only about success stories. While success stories are amazing, I think it's also really interesting and useful to hear about other people who are on the journey, maybe don't have as much success. Our goal here is to talk about what are the things that are working, what's not working, what are the hurdles that are holding people back, and why do people even want to improve at chess? This week, I am really fortunate to have the person that I consider to be sort of the father of adult chess improvement. Uh, he has two really useful, successful podcasts, the Perpetual Chess Podcast and his new How to Chess Podcast, which, by the way, if you only have like 10 minutes to go ahead and get some amazing information to help you in that moment, it's a perfect podcast. Uh, so let's get started today, and I welcome in Ben Johnson. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good, Kevin. Thanks for having me because I, I like what you're doing because, as you know, I have the Adult Improver series on Perpetual Chess, but generally I do, as you've alluded to, sort of look for people who've made these outsized gains, and I would not be in that category by any means. My rating has been going in the wrong direction for decades, so I could never be a guest on my own show. I would flunk out, so I'm happy to come on and talk about my uh, chess improvement or lack thereof, but I'm on the grindstone, so uh, hope springs eternal that I can, um, that I can make some gains in, in my game. I find it to be one of the most interesting things about your show, Ben, is that you talk regularly about how, like, you, at least for a while, it seems like, had sort of given up this notion of even improving at chess, yet you have all these amazing guests on that have made all these gains. Have they inspired you to be like, no, I can do it too? Or or what has sort of caused you to, to come back to this idea of chess improvement? Huh. I wish I could say that. I mean, I do find them inspiring, but honestly, Kevin, they work so hard and put in, for the most part, so many more hours than me that it's also a bit daunting in a sense. So I would say my main goal is, number one, I do enjoy competing in chess, although as a dad, there's certainly an opportunity cost that I feel. But I also just feel like uh, with talking about it so much, it, it makes me a better host to be working on my game and even if I'm not sort of the, the beacon of hope, if I'm not putting in like crazy, insane hours to improve, I'm trying, I'm getting out there, and I'm feeling the feelings that everyone else is feeling. So that's actually a big part of my motivation for trying to get uh, back to OTB chess over the board. Mm, interesting. So w would you say like the biggest takeaway you've had from these adult improvers is just time? Like if you put in the time you're going to have larger gains than people that don't put in the time? Yeah, I would say that is is one of them for sure. I mean, I can't think of anyone who did it without putting in multiple hours a day. But the other thing to keep in mind is all the people that I've interviewed, I tend to catch them at a moment where they've been ascending, but they've all had fits and starts as well. Like I did a follow-up interview with uh, Andres Krizdwa, who was part of the inspiration for the series, just an amazing story, um, and Stacia Pugh, um, and um, even the people who've had these outsized gains, there tend to be long periods of consolidation at best after that. So um, it's just important to keep in mind that even the successes that we spotlight, uh, n n like, um, what's the saying? Uh, trees don't grow to the sky. Eventually, they're going to have to... <laughs> At, at minimum, consolidate their gains. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I found the follow-up episodes to be kind of depressing. I was like, what? My heroes? What happened to my heroes? They're, they're just like regular people all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, it's energy and entropy. So I think part of it is just that you reach a challenge, but also like with Andres in particular, I feel like he had a hard time maintaining the, the work ethic that got him there which is totally understandable because he's a, a working dad. He was getting up before his kids to study, um, you know, probably putting in three hours a day while running a small business and having, I think he has three kids. So, like, of course that is going to fall off at times. But, yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, we're all looking for exemplars, and they can be, um, you know, they're not that easy to find. It's, it's tough getting better as a, a working adult. Yeah, for me, the, the issue is that I, I'm, a, I'm a high school teacher. So this summer, I decided I'm going to go hard, 
right? And so I'm putting in like three, four hours a day during the week. And I know that this comes to an end when the fall comes, unless I just like quit my job and become an adult improver who uh, makes zero dollars in chess. And that doesn't seem all that wise. So yeah, it's kind of, I'm kind of feeling that pinch, right? Of like, can I really improve a lot by every summer going hard and then for nine months just being like, I'm doing some puzzles? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's good to find out, but it's also good to calibrate your expectations. I mean, it sounds from what you've said, Kevin, like that's a bit of your sort of uh, the founding vision of your podcast, which I think is good. I mean, on Perpetual Chess, I try not to be a snake oil salesman. I hope I succeed, you know. I try not to, like, um, say, like, if you listen to this, you'll gain 200 rating points, you know, and stuff like that. I try to be – I try to provide inspiration but also be realistic about uh, – the, the ups and downs that are inevitable. But I think your idea of featuring people who are even not having any gains is a great one. I mean, everyone's got a story to tell. Yeah, hopefully um, people will find it interesting. And just to be clear, I, I think your podcast is very inspirational. And I, I never came away thinking like, what? Ben has promised <laughs> me and has not delivered. Right. So, so you don't need to worry at all there. Um, so, so back to your chess improvement, I'm curious. So like when you were improving, how, how did you get to the rating you got to? Was it just, you were a kid and you just played all the time with, with your friends and that kind of stuff? Or like, when did your progress sort of stop? Was it as an adult or as a kid? It was exactly like a lot of the grandmasters I interview, except I'm not a grandmaster. Um, yeah, I started tournament chess at 12 and uh, just played extremely actively till I was 18. And basically, all my rating gains came then. I went from zero to about 2270 USCF in, in those years. And then I went off to college. And in college, I still played a few tournaments, but I wasn't really studying anymore. And it's been more sporadic ever since. If, uh, I would say this past year has been the best year I've had in terms of training, but we, but I also, with everyone else getting better, um, we'll see how that shakes out in terms of gains. But I mean, I don't, I did read chess books and stuff as a teen. I did have quite an appetite for chess, but honestly, uh, even the training stuff I'm doing now, it wasn't as regimented as a teen. The games came, um, came, um, reasonably easily to me in those days. Okay. That's such a that's such a good story because I, I I try to tell myself this story. I don't know if this is a lie, Ben, but I tell myself now that I'm older and I know how to learn better, I can create better programs. I can process information in a more structured and regimented way, and maybe just maybe that can kind of offset you know the the benefits of youth. What, what do you think, Ben? Am I just completely lying to myself here? <laughs> I, t I, I wonder the same things, Kevin. I mean, a lot of it comes back to what Dan Heisman and others have talked about as the uh, divide between knowledge and skills. Um, as an adult, I think uh, the ability to increase your chess knowledge, it, it's unequivocally still there. But chess is ultimately a game about deci decision making. And uh, sorry to report, but about sort of con consistency of cognitive processing. And that's where I think a lot of us um, might run into trouble. And when I've interviewed older, uh, you know, uh, one-time chess monsters, like say I remember I am John Watson talking about he just had more, air quotes, senior moments. And mm. chess is just so unforgiving in that regard that just one or two brain farts a game can just be all the difference between, um, you know, gaining and losing rating points. So I, I'm sad to report, but I feel like that's the primary issue. And certainly as an adult with some wisdom and some self-awareness, you can work on training those things and you can make gains, but um, but it's always a challenge. Yeah, I, I will say this though, Ben, when I was a kid and it, like into my 20s, I just made terrible life decisions in general. My decisions right, are yeah. much better, Ben. So maybe... Maybe. Yeah, and the the other thing I should mention that it goes hand in hand with this is just energy. You just can't take mm -hmm. that for granted. When yeah. when I was a kid, I was playing these uh, continental chess events. They're the big organizers here in the U.S., as a lot of listeners will know. And they're just meat grinders of tournaments where you're playing two or three games a day um, till you're dizzy, basically. And when you're a kid, you take it for granted. You're kind of like just bring it on. But now, as we record, Kevin, I'm gonna finally play my first two tournaments. I'm playing two tournaments in the next three or four weeks. And 
I've, I've, as I've advocated on the podcast, I think it's important for adults to sort of manage their energy and feel no shame in taking a buy. Mm. So I'm trying to decide about taking buys for certain rounds. And then you have the sort of mental push and pull where on the one hand, you want to um, manage your energy. But on the other hand, uh, for working adults, often getting to the tournament is the biggest challenge. So it also feels moderately wasteful to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to chill in the hotel room this round, you know, and wait for the next one. So I'm wrestling with that even as we record like five days from my first tournament back. Wow. It's, it's like we're on the exact same wavelength. I played my first tournament, the Vegas Open, and I had the exact same issues of like, I know it like I and I could only play a condensed schedule. Right. So I was going to have to play three games the first day. And I was like, I just know I'm going to run out of energy, but how often am I going to get to play in a big tournament? So I did take round three off. I took a buy that that round and decided, all right, logic says two games a day is already a lot. That's fine. I'm just going to do that. So that was the the decision that I made. Yeah, I'm leaning in that direction for the Pittsburgh Open that I'm going to play in as well. And the good news is I don't have to decide beforehand. So uh, if I get a... If I get an especially easy or, God forbid, like horrible game in one of the first two faster time control games, like maybe that can, um, maybe I'll feel okay about it. But certainly the way I'm leaning is 60 40, I'll take a round three by, um, and hopefully I can judge how I feel at the time. Yeah, that, that seems smart. Um, I also have never had this experience of being at a hotel where I could just. Um, play a couple rounds and take a round off and actually like, relax. Normally, because I'm in Los Angeles, I've been playing in, well, 20 years ago when I played, I played in these big LA open things. And if I took a round off, that just meant like six hours in my car or right. like going home early. It's, it's, it wasn't the same feeling as just kind of like going in the hotel and resting. Yeah. Or even like exercising, you know, I mean, something like that, just use, use different muscles and wear yourself out physically. But I think you might be better the next day. Um, Kevin, do you have kids by the way? I do. I have two children. Um, I have a 12 year old and a six year old. So we're just kind of getting into the area where the 12 year old can kind of like, I don't want to say take care of herself, but she doesn't need to be, or or I should rephrase that. She doesn't want me in her face all day. (laughs) Right. Whereas the yeah. six-year-old still, any second she's home, she's like, hey, I'm here. Let's hang out. Yeah, yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah, because I was going to say with a dad, like having a, a quiet hotel room, that alone is just like unfathomable So yeah, and uh, enticing. Um, yeah, and mine are eight and five. So they're at the age where like I'm helpful if I'm there, but they prefer mommy, to be honest. So, oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, my when I okay, so this is the other thing. This tournament that I did was Father's Day weekend, and I didn't realize that when I booked it. And then it happened, and they were like, "Are you serious? You're you're going to be gone on Father's Day?" And I was like, "Uh, yes, I guess I am." So, yeah, these negotiations could be complicated yeah, for sure. It was awkward, but I will say this: my six-year-old has gotten really into chess, which has been a lot of fun. It gives me way more over the board games than I would get otherwise, which would be zero. Uh, right. And instead I, I've gotten, you know, several of them. We, we played some good games this weekend. Her middle game's getting good. She can't attack at all still, which is kind of funny, but um, cause she's used to playing other little kids that are rated really low. And the way she attacks them is they just give them, give her all their pieces. And she's like, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm familiar with, uh, with that type of game. <laughs> uh, so Ben, now that you are okay, I guess I should rephrase this. Would you say you are trying to be an adult approver, improver again? You know, it depends how you define it. So just to um, to uh, shine a full light on my improvement or lack thereof. So I mentioned my peak rating was around twenty two seventy USCF, and now I'm down to like twenty one fifteen USCF, which is just really disturbing to me on some levels. Um, so my intermediate goal is I would like to get my rating back to 2200 USCF. Like I can still claim to be a USCF master. It still says it, you know, I still have the certificate and stuff like that, but I would like to not be one of these like old, uh, you know, um, over the hill masters. But honestly, Kevin, I, the, I was talking about this in my recent interview with James Altucher. In order for me to get to 2200, I feel like I would basically need to be at peak strength. I don't know if there's a way to measure this. I mean, I guess if someone wanted to do some huge data project 
with like old games and running it through computers and stuff like that. They could determine how people played now as compared to when I was most active 25 years ago. But with, uh, with the information age, with so many online tools, honestly, for me to get to 2200, uh, I feel like it's doable, but I would, again, it sort of feels like I would need to be at peak strength. And that's sort of, on the one hand, that's a goal of mine. But on the other hand, I really, I'm trying to invest in the process and just kind of take the long view. So I try not to think about rating too much. I'm not like here, I've been waiting to play again for months, but I'm not doing extra training this week. I'm just kind of keeping the same routine. And I'm, you know, now that my kids are old enough where it's not too much of a strain on my wife, I'm basically hoping to play about eight tournaments a year over the next few years and just kind of see what happens. Okay. So so you're so what I'm hearing is you are an adult improver, but not with like hard ratings goals. Just I'd like to get better at chess. I'd like to reinvest in chess again. I'd like to uh, I'd like to do well in chess. Yeah, and like shout out to Neil Bruce and Geert Vandervelde of uh, of Chessable. Um, they are always recommending the book Atomic Habits, and I mm. you know I'm familiar with that sort of literature, and I finally read it. And it definitely sort of um, reinforced a couple lessons about just sort of um, shooting for very moderate but very consistent gains. So I don't mm -hmm. mind if it takes a couple years for me to show some results. Um, I know that when I started really training again within the last year, my opening repertoire, which was kind of a train wreck, which is pretty important at my level, so now with these tournaments coming up, I've actually added additional openings to my repertoire, which is kind of like you're taking a step back with the hope that it'll ultimately lead to more steps forward. So I know there's going to be some growing pains, but I'm just hoping it's not like I don't just get trounced so badly that we get that I get back in that familiar chess players feeling of just being like, why do I even subject myself to this? You know, what am I doing with my time? Because I think we all we all, to be honest, have that that debate at times. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, it, it's interesting you say that like you're not worried about your rating. I'm really trying my best to do that as well. Um, be, and it's mainly because of what you said earlier, that one mistake often undoes everything, right? So I can make all these gains in all these areas of my game and play such a brilliant game and then make this one area in this other part of my game that I haven't quite caught up, and then I lose. And I'm like... But I'm so much better than I was three months ago, but I'm still losing these games just in different areas. And it's, it's been an interesting thing for me to try to, to, to convince myself, no, you are getting better. You're way better. Your rating might not necessarily say it, but you are way better. Well, do you have these thoughts? Do you have any way to, to sort of uh, blend them together? Well, again, as I talked about in my recent interview with James Altucher, and I really, I really respect James's knowledge on this stuff. I mean, he's interviewed like uh, world-leading experts in the science of learning, like Anders Ericsson, uh, the founder of the 10,000-hour rule, and Angela Duckworth, who famously uh, came up with this concept called grit. Um, and James was was basically saying that you know, these things don't go smoothly. He was saying he thinks there's like a six-month lag time between any improvements you make and it manifesting, or I think he might have said three months, and it manifesting in in your results. So based on what you said, Kev, I mean, you definitely want to own in on, like try to identify any sort of triggers for the blunders. Try to figure out like what type of blunder. Was it born of time trouble? Was it late in the game? Um, you know, because if it's based on fatigue, maybe actually more physical training could be um, the sort of uh, best best way to address it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a constant challenge. I I remember that episode, and I remember thinking, "This is this just what people tell themselves when they're not getting the gains that they thought they were going to get?" Right. Because <laughs> it's There's such a great line, sure. right? Like, no, no, no. It takes like six months. That that's when I'll get better. Uh, it's a way to right. keep you going. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the science is right there. That's just what I. That's just what came to my mind when I heard that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely. Um, it can be soothing for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so Ben, what what are you doing then? You said you 
you're not changing sort of your habits and what you're doing. So what have you been doing to sort of try to improve, get, get wherever it is that you want to get to? Yeah. So one thing I felt bad that I forgot to mention when James asked me, because I'm not used to being interviewed. I'm, I'm used to just <laughs> listening and being ready for the follow-up question from me. But James asked me a few questions that I wasn't uh, totally prepared to respond. So the first thing I should say is I have a coach now, Ooh. which uh, before the past year, I was never getting regular one-on-one -on -one lessons. So I'm working with Grandmaster Axel Bachman, and he's been amazing. Um, and he keeps me honest in a sense, because um, I have good weeks and bad weeks in terms of uh, how much study I get done. And, you know, he's a good sport about it, but I'm sure at times it's frustrating for him if he's showing me like the same opening line two weeks in a row because I don't remember it from the previous week, you know, that sort of thing. So that's like a tangible step that I've taken, um, sort of um, a way to invest. You know, I've been lucky that I'm able to make some money from the podcast. So I look at it as sort of reinvesting in in the chess ecosystem and in my own game. And that's been real a real eye-opener just in terms of... Uh, the, the way he's able to cut through the fog of positions in a way that uh, even someone like me at 21, 2200 uh, can't do at, at that level. So that's one constant. I'm getting weekly lessons. And then it tends to be, I, it's funny because in the early days of the podcast, I was um, somewhat notoriously rather anti-opening preparation, but I'm really trying to revamp my repertoire. So I would say um, my my preparation is probably 50% openings. I love chessable, and uh, you know it's helpful that I can review openings um, on my phone and stuff like that. And then probably 25% blitz, and obviously that's another hot button topic on the podcast. Does blitz count as training? But I treat it as as training. I mean, I definitely try to learn something from every opening. I have a rule where I review every game immediately after I play it. Um, I only fall into one of these like speed chess or bullet frenzies, probably like one out of 10 playing sessions or something like that. So I'm not perfect, but it's, it's better than nothing. And then the other thing that I've been doing um, more, uh, more commonly in the past few months is I'm playing training games often with friends of mine. So I'm trying to play one rapid training game per week, like 25 minutes with an increment per side. Um, and I found that to be a great training method because I've been surprised. I've In the past on the podcast, I've talked about how I have trouble uh, replicating the feeling of OTB when I play an online game that isn't blitz. Like, I have a hard time caring. But what I've recently discovered is when I'm playing friends of mine, I don't like to lose to my friends. So um, it actually does sort of light a fire under me to take the game seriously. And it feels reasonably similar to playing in a tournament. So the training games obviously provide fodder for me to analyze and uh, Grandmaster Bachman to look at with me and help tighten up my opening repertoire and my decision making. But it's also just, it's, it's fun. I mean, the one area that I'm maybe somewhat lacking in is uh, calculation training. I, it's mm -hmm. the one thing I should do, but that I find the hardest to, to find the energy to do as a dad. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Um, so much, so much stuff there I want to ask you about. I guess the first question is, have you thought about like two days a week with, with the chess coach? Um, I mean, I would love to, from a financial perspective, that would be, uh, you know, double the commitment. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, similar to what you were saying, I mean, if you're, you know, if somehow you're like a, uh, a person of means, you know, that would be amazing. I would love to, I would love to train as much as possible, um, with Axel, but um, yeah, that's probably not happening anytime um, in the near future. Sometimes if we miss a week, we'll do a 90-minute lesson instead of a 60-minute lesson the next week. But yeah, once a week is probably, as you say, it, it would help a lot, but it's probably not uh, financially doable in the near future. Gotcha. Um, I really like your suggestion of analyzing every blitz game. I do the same thing. That, that's what makes me feel like they have some value. Uh, I have a friend who just like falls into these blitz holes and then gets really angry. And I'm like, just stop and look at the game. He's like, no, I must get my revenge. So I, I think that's a great idea to just stop after each one and uh, examine them. Yeah, uh, and I feel bad because people are always challenging me to, to rematches. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm not opposed to rematches, but I can't break my rules. So, well, yep. I do break them, but but I try not to, and I, I only break them 10% of the time. So um, <laughs> when these people immediately, and it can be win or lose, when they immediately challenge me to a rematch, I'm generally, it's like I wish, I'm, I'm not so facile with the chat on these sites. Mm. Um, and uh, I, it's like I, I should probably put in my notes. Um, there, there won't be an auto rematch, and it's nothing personal, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I want to have like a button that says like accept rematch in ten minutes. Like, right, that, exactly. that'd be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I find really fascinating about this regiment that you just outlined, like from your podcast, you clearly love chess books. I heard nothing in there about reading chess books. Yeah, well, I read so many for the podcast, so like mm. maybe you could count that, maybe you couldn't. But honestly, Kevin, I mean, it's such a, such a nonstop regimen of chess books I'm reading for the podcast that I just, I can't get lost in a book the way I would left to my own, um, my, my own inclinations. Um, I, I'm always like thinking about the, the next book and I'll have mm. multiple projects going on uh, at a time, like just to give you, an, and I like to read outside of chess. So just to give you an example, so right now, uh, you know, Grandmaster Axel Marcos's book, Under the Surface, has been recommended on the podcast many, many times. And I just have a hard time, if I don't know I'm going to interview someone, I have a hard time picking up a book like beyond the ones where I'm going to interview someone or, or the book recap podcast because there's just so much already. So Grandmaster Marcos, I know uh, Dr. Christopher Shapri and many others, and I am Kostya Kavutsky, was actually just recently out with a video um, about Under the Surface. So I wanted to read it for a long time. Oh, J.J. Lang, adult improver, loves that book. So finally I'm reading that. But meanwhile, part of the reason I reached out to him is because he has a new book. So I want to read that. And then I'm doing a book recap of my system. So uh, later <laughs> in the month. And meanwhile, there's like other book recaps scheduled further down the line. So I do read those books. But again, like I need to be able to summarize the pros and I need to sort of look for good follow-up questions for the authors. So it's just, it's just not the same thing in terms of like my improvement regimen. So obviously I'm spending way more than an hour a day on chess, but the hour a day I describe as sort of stuff not related to the podcast. And um, one, one like value that I've become pretty clear on is like, if it comes to like making the podcast better or making my own chess game better, I'm unequivocally team podcast. Like I, I feel greater allegiance um, to to my audience than I do to to the you know relatively uh, self indulgent um, idea of trying to regain some rating points I lost. All right. Well, we all appreciate that. That's very generous of you. Um, I, I'm wondering if is there any way for you to like <clears throat> the books you're reading for the podcast to really try to slow down maybe even just a little and take notes on like, how is this helping my game in addition to writing down questions or thoughts about the book for the review? I wonder if there's a way to maybe engage the training element of those books more, or is it just the pace is such a breakneck pace that there's no time to like slow down at all? Yeah, a little bit more the latter, but, but also like, I don't think it's useless for my chess by any means. I mean, mm -hmm. you're you're picking up the the wisdom of of so many great players. So again, it, it comes down to calculation. That's really where I get lazy. Like in my own training, um, I have trouble doing the setting up a chess set, solving an end game study, you know, um, stuff like that. I have trouble sticking with that. And when I'm reading these books. It's, it's the moments where they say, like, pause and think for five minutes. You know, those are the ones where I'm like, well, you know, I've got three <laughs> books I need to finish in the next eight days. So I don't think, like, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, I think if you look at the solution without pausing and thinking for five minutes, it's still going to help your chest. It's just not going to help it as much, mm -hmm. you know. So that's sort of where I land. Okay. Um, I've got a book suggestion for you. I, I know okay. this is ridiculous because you hear book suggestions all day, every day. Um, I'm working through The Best Move, which is a, a calculation book where it's just one position. It's really hard. You work through it. You try to come up with the line, and then it gives you points based on 
how you did. I've been finding that useful because it's like, I feel like even if I just do one position a day for 10 minutes, I've sort of really forced myself to calculate. Um, and then when I give up too early, it's pretty obvious. I'll, and then I, then I feel a little shamed that I, that I gave up so early and the next time I'll, I'll work a little bit harder. Now, is that the Hort and Yansa best move? Or there was also a series by a couple British authors. There's a few best move ones, so. Yeah, this is the one by um, Hort and Yansa. Okay, yeah, that book is no joke. Speaking of, uh, it, yeah. I interviewed uh, Grandmaster Hort, so I did pick up, and that book's legendary, but it, it falls in the category of ones I hadn't, I hadn't spent much time with. Um, until I was getting ready to interview him. Yeah, it's good for you that, that you're working on that book. It's, um, you know, he's got impressive calculation powers, obviously. I will say this. I'm doing poorly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no shame in that. This is my favorite part, though. I set this position up, and, and it, was really, it was really just, which way do you capture? Do you capture with the king sort of into the middle of the board, making him more vulnerable, or do you capture with the, with the e-pawn, um, you know, making your pawn structure worse? And so I'm looking at it, I'm having a hard time coming up with a line. I come up with a line, it's, it's totally awful, it has nothing to do with the position. And I bring my daughter in, and my six-year-old, and she just goes, well, obviously you don't take with the king, that would be madness. Like, you, you have to take with the pawn. And I was like, no, 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 and I showed her this line I calculated, and she's like, I mean, you can do that, but I don't know why you would put your king in the middle like that. And then uh, I look at the solution, it's like, you would have to be chess blind to take with the king. And I was like, wow, okay. And my daughter's like, yeah, I know, I agree. Good, good for your daughter. Uh, that was pretty funny. So, yeah, I, I'm enjoying that book a lot just because um, it's just pressing me. It's really pressing me to think hard, and I get close on a bunch of them. Um, I'm not doing it to solve them necessarily. I'm doing it to try to push myself and, and, and just work on calculation because it's I, I give myself a break too often where I'll be like, I'll calculate and then I'll stop and I'll just be like, that seems fine. And it's like, that seems fine is not really uh, an evaluation. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I'm with you. All right. Um, so it sounds like one of the biggest issues for you is time, right? And this is an issue for everybody. So I'm just wondering, have you ever thought about like, maybe I should pri reprioritize things in my life for chess and like, scale back at work or scale back on my podcast or scale back on my family commitments. Like, dude, are these things you're weighing at all? Are you just like, no, chess has to be sort of after all of that. And I fit it in where it can fit in. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's more the latter. I think it just has to do with the stage of life that I'm in. If I were um, in my twenties with less going on, but you know, my wife has a demanding job and like, I think like a lot of uh, parents, we we kind of, even during the pandemic, even with uh, work from home conditions, I sort of feel like we see ourselves only in passing during the day. Um, so, so at night, I'll often like watch a show with her or something like that. And that's what I would have to give up. Um, I think I've mentioned on the podcast in the past, even waking up early, like my son is up at 6 a.m., um, and I've never been a morning person, so waking up early is kind of uh, off the table as well. So I think for me, realistic, I've you know, it's been an evolution. I've I've sort of had to come around to this point of view, but um, it's uh, it's hard to envision. Like I could go from sixty to ninety minutes a day, conceivably, depending on work circumstances. But um, unless unless someone's gonna like, you know, pay me to study chess. I don't, I don't see, uh, I don't see more than that really materializing generally. Yeah, I can understand that. It sounds like the life you're describing is very similar to mine, um, where it's kind of like when the wife and I can have time together, that has to be prioritized. Children have to be prioritized. Work has to be prioritized. So where does chess fit in? What I'm really struggling with, and I'm curious what you think about this is, I don't like being bad at the things that I do, and I like to put everything I have into the things I do. It, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, 20 years ago I played chess. Um, I had some really great quick rating gains, but they were the easy ones, right? I got to 1,700 really quick, and it gets a lot harder after that. And I was going into grad school, and I was like, I'm going to have to put a lot of energy into that. 
I would rather just not play chess than like play a couple hours a week and be bad at it. Um, it, what are your thoughts there? Have you just gotten to, to that point in your life where you're just like, I just have to accept I'm going to be as good as I'm going to be with the time I have? Yeah, but I mean, I think you should take pride in the work that you do on it and not not the outcome of the work. Um, so, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. You can only control so much, and I don't think that it's worth, like, jeopardizing the relationships in your life in order to... Um, study a bit more chess. But I do think that it's noble, and I often say this sort of thing on the show, and I feel this way not just about chess, but about any endeavor that someone's going to put a, a decent amount of energy in just to make themselves better. I think that that's a, that's a noble way to spend your time. So I really think that that's, that's what you need to tell yourself. And the results, really, you can only control so much. And, you know, you're being bad at chess is like a story that you're telling yourself. It's not really true in like an objective sense. And I struggle with this, too, because, you know, when I made master when I was 18, I don't know what the percentages were, but it felt like it was a lot more rare. And even though there were still IMs and GMs around, it wasn't the online age. So it didn't feel like they were ubiquitous the way it does now. And now it's like not only... Not only do I feel like there are more masters, I'm sure that there are, but also just like every, uh, you know, every stronger player in the world than me has like their own YouTube channel and they're available for <laughs> lessons, you know. So I just feel I'll, at times like a, a rank beginner, even at my level. So I've definitely had to sort of come around to, to the process of like, your, you know, your chess ability isn't what defines you. It's the, you know, it's the effort to to improve and the love for the game really yeah and it's it's also so weird to hear like grandmasters talk about how inadequate they are compared to like super grandmasters right it's just like i feel like 20 years ago that at least for me that knowledge wasn't so public right like i didn't have access to grandmaster thoughts all the time whereas now it feels like between your podcast different content creations that that's sort of out there and then even the super gms get crushed by the computers which again 20 years ago the computers were sort of like just starting to overtake the the humans and it was like kind of traumatic for me i remember i'm like kasparov can't just want the computers anymore what is going on yeah exactly yeah i mean everyone sort of comes to to that point with again with the possible exception of magnus and people like that but as you say like even they have to reckon with our silicon overlords um, all right, so so uh, Ben, I've I've been coming up with this idea of like, how can I fill all of my like extra time with chess related stuff? So for instance, whenever I'm doing the dishes or something like that, I'll be listening to say Perpetual Chess podcast. Um, smart idea, exactly. Always a smart idea to listen to that podcast. Um, but I have an hour drive each way. Um, to work coming in the fall. And and I could certainly just listen to podcasts and that's what I have been doing. But I'm trying to figure out ways to have more active learning. So I'm I'm considering doing like blindfold chess or puzzles while driving. I don't know that I can split my brain that much. I'm going to probably experiment. But have you thought of that? Like trying to find activities that can increase your chess knowledge while doing the sort of minor tasks in your life? Yeah, I have. I've thought of it. And I know some people who have tried it. And I think there's even a guy who has some blindfold chess podcasts. And I was actually doing some blindfold puzzles at the end of some of the book recap ones. It seemed like a, not a lot of people were doing them relative to the number of listeners. And they're kind of a lot of work to make sure mm. you get every little detail right. So I, I ended up stopping doing that. Um, you know, as long as you feel like the driving is safe to, to do while you're practicing your visualization, I think it's okay. For me, I mean, I love chess, but I also love podcasts. It was um, my love for podcasts was um, probably as much motivation for starting perpetual chess as my love for chess. So I do have a lot of time where I'm doing the dishes or driving the kids around. But for me, it's like I already can't keep up with all the other podcasts I'm interested in. So um, for me, it's uh, my chess time is with a you know with a screen, and I might even do some some blindfold visualization training on a day where I'm inspired, but it's not going to be while I'm driving. I could do it at the gym though. I could do it like while I'm uh, doing boring cardio. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. I think that would work. This sounds safe. You probably won't hurt yourself while doing a puzzle. At least you won't hurt anyone else. You know? Okay, that's that's a good point. Um, how, how about, uh, do you ever feel guilty when you're not doing chess stuff? So I'll give you an example. On Friday, I, I discovered this new auto-battler game. You may have no idea what I'm talking about, but it was really fun, and I just loaded it up, and I thought I would play for like a half hour, and I used most of my chess time on Friday doing it, and I felt horrible afterwards. Right. I was like, oh, no, I just wasted all of this time I could have used to improve on chess on this other thing that, by the way, I enjoyed doing, but now feels hollow afterwards. Yeah, a little bit. I feel that way when I play bullet chess, even though it's chess. Mm. Um, and I'm a sports fan. That's kind of like my one big time waster. Um, you know, as we record, the NBA finals are going on and I watch those and some, you know, I'll, uh, I'll review some openings on my phone on Chessable and stuff like that while, while I'm playing. But I definitely, it's not for me, chess is part of it, but it's also like just being quote unquote productive, um, as you know, as a self-employed sort of, uh, whatever they call it these days, solopreneur or whatever stupid little hacky term for someone that's basically trying to patch together a professional life. Um, uh, I, I feel guilty about like downtime and probably shouldn't. But for me, it's if I were reading fiction or something like that or reading nonfiction, I wouldn't feel bad about it not being chess. But if I'm doing something that just to relax, often I'll feel guilty, even though I probably shouldn't. Yeah, that's how I'm feeling. If I'm hanging out with my kids or something, that's totally fine. But right. for whatever reason, like I'm playing a different fun hobby that's not chess. It's like that. Then I then I feel bad about it for some reason. I'm yeah. I'm trying well, to figure out that that balance. Yeah, I mean, video games in particular. I think a lot of chess players, myself included, have a bit of an addictive personality. So I played a decent amount of video games as a teenager and in college. Uh, you know, when like having drinks and stuff like that, played a lot with friends. Um, so ever since then, I just kind of decided at some point that it, I didn't think I could moderate it. So mm. I don't, I don't play video games at all because they're just too much fun. Wow, that's that is a very responsible position that I have decided not to take. <laughs> yeah, I, I I could argue either way. I definitely understand where you're coming from. And my son, again, he, he's a somehow mm. the the my wife and I have been waiting for the moment when he asked for whatever video game system, but it hasn't happened yet. So, like as you alluded to, once that happens, I wouldn't feel so bad about playing with him. But luckily, um, for now, I mean, he plays a few little iPad games, but he hasn't asked for, like, I don't even know what the systems are these days. They still do PlayStations and oh, yeah. Xboxes, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you haven't, like, lured him in yet, where you're like, you should try this video game. Oh, you like it? Would you like the system? Right. Yeah, no, I really try not to. There's not enough hours in the day as, there, as it is, so. Okay, well, that's very, that's very responsible of you. Another thing I didn't hear you mention was uh, uh, videos. There's so many amazing content providers out there. You've had so many on your show. Do you consciously not watch those videos? Do you just feel like your other methods are, are more useful for you? What, do you? what do you think about videos? Yeah, for me, it's the latter. I, I, um, I think I've mentioned this in the past um, somewhere, but I, I always felt like I'm I, I read more, I learn more in a self-directed way. I, I learn well by reading. Um, if I miss something, I can go back. Um, but, you know, as uh, back in my school days, I often would find myself kind of zoning out during lectures. And mm -hmm. I've noticed that about when I try to watch chess videos. Um, you know, of course you can rewind, but that gets to be a bit, to me it's easier to go back in a page than to like go back to the spot where you stop paying attention. Um, so for me, I, it's just not my preferred method of learning, even though there's just uh, absolute treasure trove of amazing content creators. And when I'm getting ready to interview someone, obviously, if they have a lot of videos out there, I try to, to keep up. But generally, it's not my preferred method of learning. Okay. I think that's a fair answer. I think that's one of the cool things about chess right now is there are so many options that whatever is your best method of learning you can engage. And I think that's such a cool place that we're at right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
so I want to ask you about Chessable real quick. It, it sounds like Chessable is a pretty big part of your program as someone who's trying to revamp openings. So I guess this is my question. How do you use Chessable? Do you buy like someone's lifetime repertoire and just work through it? Do you build your own courses? How, how is it that you're using it? So I'm a huge fan of their short and sweet courses and their quick starter courses. And I mm -hmm. saw a uh, shout out to FM Nate Solon, a friend of mine. Um, he mentioned that whenever he starts an opening course, he starts with the quick starter. Um, and only from there, like, and then he plays, Nate's a great blitz player and he plays a lot of blitz. And whenever he faces someone, um, whenever he then encounters a line uh, in one of his blitz games, he'll go deeper um, within the actual course. And that's sort of my approach as well. And, you know, I'm a strong enough player where I can also develop openings on my own. And, of course, I have uh, Axel Bachman teaching me some lines that are not in chessable. But, honestly, I'm, like, such a chessable fan of their opening courses in particular that I really like to have the sort of pre-designed course with, um, with the correct inputs and stuff like that. So I design my own courses to review some lines, but I seem to never get it sequenced quite right in terms of, like, it feeding me the moves I really need to know and not the sort of um, beginning moves and stuff like that. And I do a bit of tactical training on Chessable too. I've done some Woodpecker method and some uh, forcing moves um, by Charlie Hurtan. Um, and th that's about the extent of it. I mainly like it for tactics and opening lines. Okay. That's interesting. It I, when I try to use Chessable, um, and maybe it's just I'm not quite strong enough yet, but like when I try to download someone's course i always struggle with it because it'll be like uh, i'll start with a quick starter guide and then i'll like one line and then another line i'm like i don't i'm not sure i fully understand from this course where this is going or i don't really like where it's going and i find that the active method of like getting several courses like a free course a short and sweet and then a video and kind of like assembling my own lines I feel like I can remember them and remember the plans better, but I wonder if I'm just building a bad repertoire. <laughs> like that might, I'm, I'm like memorizing better a bad repertoire. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's tough to say. And I've, you know, it can be daunting. You know, these courses have so, so many lines that it can be, um, it, it definitely everyone kind of has to find their own way. And uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be so hard, hard on myself if I were you, Kevin. I mean, that, Something is better than nothing in all cases when it comes to chess training. I got Anish Geary's Nidorf course because he's amazing. I really enjoy him. I think he's hilarious. Um, by the way, he's not that funny in the course. Just, just like he's oh, great. Really? Okay, yeah. But it's it's a more serious course. But still, the the amount of lines and information, I was just like, hey Geary, uh, I don't think you made this for me. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the super GMs in particular, I think you do need to be a little bit careful. I mean, because those, you know, other grandmasters can really learn from those. If you know, if you keep that in mind, it's going to be, it's hard to make a course that's like catered to a 2,500 player and, you know, um, a, a 1,700 like yourself and a 1,300. So mm -hmm. um, definitely something that, that, uh, that one should bear in mind. Yeah, it's just it's just been I think the big lesson for me with Chessable is that I think you have to be or at least for me, I have to be really active in how I use Chessable and not just passively buy some amazing player's course and think that I'm going to like magically learn all those lines. I think you just have to be really careful about like what are the lines I'm trying to learn, how deep am I trying to learn them? I think defaulting to learning to a Nidorf line, 28 lines, 28 moves deep is probably not the best place for, say, the 1300 to start with. Yeah. And the Nidorf is just, that's a, that's a big project, just full stop. That's just a tough one. It's just so much theory. I mean, it's an amazing opening. It's super fun. But yeah, I, I personally wouldn't, I, I mean, I, I have friends, you know, dad, friend, adults around my level who play it, but, uh, but it's, I think it's, it's hard uh, below, say, 1,800 to, to even attempt to keep up with all the theory. But on the other hand, at least you know it's a good opening. So, like, if you, you know, um, if you take solace in the fact that it's a well-respected evergreen opening and just try to learn a, bit, a little bit each time, 
um, it's a reasonable goal. Just know you're never going to know all the theory. Yeah, so that that's a good quick conversation then. It's about like how to how to choose openings because I chose the Nidorf, I don't know, twenty years ago when I picked up chess. It's the only response I've ever played to e four. I was playing it as a one thousand because you know I read somewhere like this is the best opening you can play. It'll be hard, but you'll learn it. And I sort of sort of took that tact of like I will like other one thousands don't know how to play against it anyway, so that's fine. Um, and so I've just played it and played it and played it. And every time I've tried to switch, you know, I'll watch some video and they're like, just play the night or if it's the best. And I'm like, okay. And just finally a week ago, I was like, no, I just can't. Like I need a manageable response to E4 that doesn't allow white to play a thousand different options before we even get to the night Um, and then I have to know all this information. So what, yeah. what do you, what do you think about that? Did I make the right choice, Ben? I don't know. I mean, what I would say, Kevin, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, is really be sure that, like, you'd have, you need to assess how your openings are doing. And I'm going to give a gratuitous shout out to my friends and sponsors, Aim Chess. I think that they they help with that. So there is the feeling of being lost, which is not to be totally ignored, of feeling kind of uh, out at sea in terms of what to do in an opening. But if you're consistently okay after 12 moves, 15 moves in the night or if, um, whether you know the theory or not is not as important. You know, chess is not an, a, a contest of opening theory. It's uh, who plays the best games. So if you're just worse all the time out of the, out of the Nidorf, then I would say, yes, maybe you need to switch because learning more can be daunting. But if it's just that, obviously, there's like nine reasonable moves on move six, and as you say, you're facing like the Moscow and the C3 Sicilian some other chunk of the time. So I get that it's totally um, overwhelming in a sense, but just stay focused on the big picture of like, am I doing okay out of the opening or not? And as long as you're doing okay, then don't, you know, don't kill yourself and maybe focus on other aspects of the game or other openings where you are getting killed. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I do need to do a better job of determining. I, I don't even know how I do out of the night or if I feel like I do fine when we hit the night or um, but I also have sort of told myself, you know, if I learn a new opening, so I'm learning the Karakhan, just the process of learning new structures and new positions will be good for my chess. And it doesn't mean I have to give up on the Nidorf, but that's because I'm putting in, you know, four or five hours a week, right? I mean, a day right now, but once we go back to the school year and I'm putting in 45 minutes a day, then suddenly like I will lose the Nidorf if I don't play it. Yeah, but then there's also, I mean, and, and this has come up on the podcast, and shout out to everyone who said it. My friend Jan Gustafsson comes to mind, but it's really important. Just do what you enjoy. Um, mm. You know, so if you enjoy learning the Carol Khan, then, le- then learn the Carol Khan. And honestly, that's sort of what I'm doing, too. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm incorporating some new openings. So, you know, I, I had to relearn. I had to learn new openings from scratch about a year ago. Um, but I'm also trying to have basically two openings against everything, whether I be mm. white or black. And there's some growing pains, and maybe it's not going to be optimal for my result. But for now, I'm enjoying it, so I'm just going to keep doing it. So how did you choose your new openings? Did you choose them based on, like, evergreen status? Or did you, you know, read some one of the many books you read, and you were just like, ooh, that sounds cool? Like, what, what was your process for deciding what you're going to play? Yeah, I think for everyone it's different. Um, I'm a lifelong E4 player, so it was more a matter of finding lines within E4 for that part of it. And then I just, I and again, I feel like I this is probably more in my imagination than reality, but there there were two primary motivations. Number one, to be like not super easy to prepare for, but there's not that much time to prepare, honestly, in these uh, quick-hitting American events. And my number two goal, as I get older, I've talked on the podcast about developing old man chess. Um, and I do feel like uh, with all these strong young kids, there's something to be said for for having a line that maybe is slightly less theoretical um, and maybe slightly less tactical. So when I was coming up, I was a more tactical player. So, mm. you know, playing E4, and I used to play the Accelerated Dragon, which turned out not to be so tactical because of the Meroxy. Um, but I've been learning the Shveshnikov. So I basically, I wanted kind of an open repertoire and a closed repertoire against everything. And um, 
that way I can try to be a little adaptable to my opponents based on circumstances. Um, but by no means am I saying that's like, that's what everyone should do. That's just kind of what my goal was and I'm having fun with it. So hopefully like that should be enough, you know, and what nothing else should matter. Yeah. That seems like such good advice. Anyway, I, I love the idea of, um, right now I've been playing against, uh, against, um, Sicilians. I've been just, I'm an E4 player also. I've just been walking into the open and I've been hesitant to learn the close just because every time I think like, maybe I should learn the close. I look up like, is the close Sicilian good? And there's like 20 grandmasters who are like the close Sicilian is garbage. Um, but I'm wondering if just like that flexibility against, you know, you're playing this eight year old kid who goes into the Sicilian and you're like, you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to get into a tactical battle with this kid whose uh, tactical abilities may be infinitely better than mine, I'll just play the close Sicilian and if nothing else, frustrate them. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a strategy to take. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not I'm not claiming to that that it's right, but but it agrees with me. So we'll see what happens. Gotcha. Um, all right. Okay. I've heard you say this a lot about your new openings. Are these secret, or do you wanna do you wanna talk about what you what you've chosen? I mean, it's kind of silly for me to keep it a secret because, um, because you know, the information is out there for anyone who works that hard. And, you know, if anyone listens to this podcast, you know, just to find out what openings I play, congratulations, you know. <laughs> so um, with White, as I said, I've always been an E4 player, and I have basically one line against every major defense. But I'm also, uh, Axel has me playing um, one night F3 a lot of the time and basically just trying to, Hope that as soon as I play one night F3, my opponent just like passes out from boredom, you know, <laughs> that moment right there. And then I went on time. So that's sort of my main plan. I'm kidding, of course, but I'm learning these, uh, these more slow building structures and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I guess you might call it a ready, but you know, D4 is interesting. These closed openings are different, are interesting because unlike E4, there's just so much transposition stuff. Um, you know, there's like, your King's Indian players are going to try to play the King's Indian no matter what. Your Grunfeld players are going to try to play the Grunfeld no matter what. Um, so there's just a whole lot of nuances. And honestly, like my blitz rating has taken a tumble trying to uh, trying to incorporate it all. But that's what I'm doing with white and with black. I'm playing uh, Team Scandi, but not not Queen takes D5. I'm playing Knight F6. Mm. Um, and that's been a process to learn as well. Um, and that like, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't have the best reputation, but it's so uh, unpopular that I think it, it can give you an advantage if you really learn it. So that's one that Axel suggested for me. And um, I play, uh, I'm mainly learning the um, the Nimzo and uh, the Rogozin against D4 stuff. I love uh, Christoph Zalecki and um, uh, FM Barish, Daniel Barish's uh, course on it on Chessable. But I've also, like, that's one where I revamped old openings. I used to play the Benoni. I've played some Queen's Gambit declines. So I have other openings that I can play against D4 as well. So I think that covers everything. Yeah, nice. But it's totally overwhelming, <clears throat> as you can tell. I yeah, mean, wow. Like, so that's, what, that's, again, that's why I'm trying to take sort of a five-year view. If I, even with all these openings, if I continue the regimen of trying to learn a little something from every Blitz game, and if I can continue to play you know, eight to 10 tournaments a year, um, then I think over time it will all pay off. But it's, you know, there there are honestly, like coming up in these tournaments in the next few weeks, there are openings where like I could be thinking on the third move, which like of my rating, that's a little disturbing. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, I definitely have the strategy of uh, I only pick up one new opening at a time, um, which, which was really hard when I came back to chess after 20 years and didn't know how to play any openings. I was still just kind of like, I'm only going to do one at a time and then try to scale up that way. Yeah. I, yeah. That might've been a better approach, but here I am. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. I like yours better. Just go all in. Um, I do yeah. want to, I do want to mention the Scandinavian. I think that's, that's such an interesting thing because this, uh, going into that last tournament I played, my opponent played a Scandinavian and this, this was my assessment of it. I was like, okay, it's not a garbage opening, but it's not good. I should be fine. And that was the that was the amount of information I knew about it too. And then quickly I realized, like, wait, I don't actually know how to play against the Scandinavian. 
Yeah, there's something to be said for a lot of those types of openings, like the modern or the Pierce and the, the various different Scandies or even the Philidor against D4. And of course, there's, uh, you know, different ones against D4. But if you just really know them, like mm -hmm. your opponent is facing them such a small percentage of the time that even if at the GM level, they're pretty rare uh, guess, there's something to be said for just knowing them and knowing the structures. Um, and your opponent is just, it's going to be really hard for them to know them as well. And I'm sir, I certainly don't know on the white side of some of those openings. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear how you do to your tournament. Last question before we go. I just want to ask you, like, I, I try to ask this of everyone. How do you measure your progress? Are you going to measure it through your over-the-board rating? Are you measuring it through rapid games? Are you measuring it through games with your friends, your puzzle rating? Or are you just saying, I'm not even going to worry about measuring it at all. I'm so about the process. Yeah, well, the last is certainly my goal. My goal is to be as process-oriented as possible. But losing really hurts, you know? So there's, it's not even, like, obviously losing more, even more rating points <laughs> would, would be... Uh, would be a bit bothersome for me, but it's more just the pain of the blunder is just uh, tough to deal with. So uh, one of the reasons I haven't, uh, one of the things holding me back is uh, time management. So I'd like to make some gains in time management, but the main way I want to measure myself in these upcoming tournaments is I just want to try really hard, you know, try, mm. try to take as few walks as possible. Um, you know, in the past, again, being a dad, I've been late for some, some rounds. <laughs> And that to me, that's just like, that's low hanging fruit. And, you know, sometimes it might be because I'm like cramming to prepare, although more commonly it's just like I couldn't get it together to get somewhere. Like I'm going to play in the U.S. Open in New Jersey. Uh, I live in New Jersey, so it's about a 45 minute drive. Mm. And I'll be, you know, working and doing dad stuff during the day every day. And I'm going to try not to leave my wife in the lurch, like getting dinner ready every night and stuff like that. So it's going to be a lot, but I'm, I just have to be disciplined about, like, I have to be out the door at a certain time. I can't stroll in 20 minutes late to a game. And, like, after, you know, after all of this work, after all of this preparation, um, just punt off some time at the beginning of the game. So those are sort of my modest expectations. But, I, yeah, I'm not I'm, – I'm trying to be as process-oriented as possible. Gotcha. And with the late thing, it kind of depends on how you are. But I know for myself – when I run late to things, I get all stressed and like that's yeah, so exactly. distracting. Yeah, exactly. And I've been there, especially with morning rounds. And I, I just, I need to stop doing that. Yeah, I had an opponent in Vegas come about 20 minutes late to the round, but I think it was intentional. Um, if it wasn't, he was just masterful in like composing himself, but he like slowly sat down at the table, looked at everything, adjusted all of his pieces wrote all the information on the score sheet and still not making his move. You know, it's right. like I would have like ran in quickly slammed a move down, sat down, not this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm always frantic when I'm late, but I'm often late <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully that ends now. Yeah. The tough part of having all the responsibilities, being a dad, also trying to do chess means time is always stretched. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of that, thanks so much for donating some of your time to coming on to this podcast, The Journey. I think it was really awesome to hear sort of your take on chess improvement, what you've been doing, what your strategies are. You do such an amazing job listening so well to your guests that I feel like you only add that information very sporadically in your own podcast. So I, hopefully the, uh, the listeners got to hear and learn quite a bit more about you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I mean, like I've been saying, honestly, the the people I interview are just so impressive. And I, I've just, for me, it's like I just have to take a sort of um, more middle ground approach where uh, chess is an important part of my life, but it's going to remain sort of at its station. It's not It's not going to grow. And hopefully it's enough to, to help me become a better player. But if not, I'll, uh, I'll still be grinding. Nice. And uh, where, where can people contact you or what, what should people know about you? What do you want to leave them with? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's my favorite social media. 
uh, at Beneficial One. And then we have the new chess podcast, How to Chess Pod, that's, uh, as you, thanks for the plug at the beginning, um, devoted exclusively to chess improvement and a, a little more uh, accessible in terms of time investment. So I really want people to subscribe and rate and review uh, to that one as well, because Perpetual Chess, has, it's been nice to see the, the growth. And anyone listening who isn't, please uh, subscribe, even if you don't listen. Um, and <laughs> the same for How to Chess. But yeah, and you can email me at ben at perpetualchesspod.com among uh, my other five email addresses somehow. But um, but yeah, not too hard to track down. And I try and, you know, I succeed 80% of the time in answering whatever messages I get, I would say. Nice. Yeah, I, I was really as long impressed. As they're not mean. <laughs> as long as I mean, yeah, I, I reached out to you and you answered me right away. I was really surprised. I was just just about something different. I was just like, uh, "Hey, I'm thinking about playing in a chess tournament. I'm really excited." And you're like, "Cool, random person who messaged me. Sure, I'll respond." So I really appreciate yeah, I that. Yeah, I try. I mean, my podcast is based on sort of the the generosity of other people. You know, um, you, you know, I'm interviewing these top players who a lot of them there's there's not that much in it for them to to do an interview. So. Um, I try to, to keep that in mind and bring that mindset to uh, everything, everything that I do as well. Uh, you can find me at Tiny Grimes Games on uh, Twitter. Uh, that's a whole other explanation of why that is. I also started a blog on chess.com. Uh, for anyone that's interested, my account is drskull. Um, I just, it, the blog is just simply what my progress is each day, what I've been doing. And it's more for me to track it so that at the end of the summer, I can kind of look back and see what I did, maybe use it for motivation. But if you want to read about what I'm doing, feel free to engage there. And if you would like to share your journey, reach out to me, let me know. I'm looking for guests, uh, to appear on this podcast to talk about your journey. Remember, it doesn't have to be tales of your demolishing your opponents and your rating gains. It can just simply be uh, you really enjoy chess and you're trying to get better and, and feel free to come on and share with us. So thanks again, Ben, for uh, joining us today. It was a really uh, great opportunity to talk to you and uh, I'll see you all next time on the journey. Goodbye, everybody. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Good luck uh, with your podcast and over the board. Thank you.